Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio for PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
Today we experience a day in the life of Javier Cabral. He's a taco scout for Netflix's Taco Chronicles. Javier discusses what it's like to hit a taco wall after eating at three taquerias before 7 a.m., and he calls out the long-standing misconceptions about this staple food. Something really interesting happens when you slip a tortilla under, you know, like let's say you have like two beautiful scallops, right? And you serve that in a restaurant. People would be okay paying like $14, $15, you know, for two big jumbo scallops. But when you put it on a tortilla, something switches and it's, I think people just have this double standard with tacos and they think that tacos should always be cheap. Also coming up, we make a crunchy caramelized coconut-filled Danish dream cake, and Adam Gopnik discusses his most recent kitchen creation. The first is my interview with writer John Birdsall about his most recent book, The Man Who Ate Too Much, The Life of James Beard. John, welcome to Milk Street. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I've read uh, quite a few things about Jim Beard. I know him a little bit back in the late 70s, 80s. Uh, but I think the man who ate too much really does the best job. It uh, really goes into great detail and tells a lot of the story I didn't know. So Thank you. Um, one of the things you say is camp is where James' charm resides alongside his power. Uh, could you explain what that means? Yeah, you know, James's natural voice was really a camp voice, um, which you can see in his first actually not his first book, Hors d'oeuvres and Canapes, but his next couple of books that he did for Ambarrows and Company. You know, gender roles at the time were very circumscribed, and James seems to sort of float above that. Um, and so you can see, uh, you know, a gay man in New York City who's just kind of writing in his natural voice. In a few cases in his book, um, Cook It Outdoors, which is from 1941, he even has a sort of playful, sly, sexual innuendo when he's talking about garlic and saying that it's a real roughhouser, but like most roughhousers, it's kind of fun to have around for a while. So you can really see the, the kind of power of his natural camp voice there. So let's start at the beginning. He was born in Oregon, 1903. Right. His father, he did not see as much. Uh, his mother was very key to him, who were in a boarding house. And you mentioned, I didn't know this, that his father actually had a, a separate family. Is that right? Yeah, his father had another sort of shadow family, um, another woman, um, and they had a child together. And it's something that I believe his mother knew about, but James didn't learn this until he was in his very early 20s. So the early days, as a child in the summer, they go down to the coast and he wrote about this in Delights and Prejudices, talking about the, the oysters, they were fried, hissing and foaming, edging into brownness yeah, right. with a sense so rich it would seem capable of tinting the air of gold. So that really left a mark on him, right? Yeah, that was a huge influence. Um, you know, James and his mother would tend to go to the coast, uh, this kind of beautiful town called Gearhart, and it was really their time and their place to get away from James's father. And at the coast, James was able to get lost in the landscape and also to begin his fascination with food and food that really expressed this intense level of pleasure that he really didn't know in his life in Portland. So James always wanted to be an opera singer and then an actor. And could you describe his uh, audition at the Royal Academy of Music, which uh, did not go well? Yeah, it was a failure. Um, he had a he had a mentor in Portland, Oregon, who 
saw something in James. And so he arranged for James to have an audition in London, a singing audition. And so, you know, he takes this, this cheap steamer um, that's transporting apples from the Pacific Northwest to the UK. And then, yes, gets to London, really bombs in his audition. And of course, you know, isn't admitted to the school. And, you know, so there he is. He's traveled for a month. He's in London. He's facing failure. And so he sort of turned to food as a, as a, as a kind of last resort. But he did turn to food in a larger-than-life way. He had a brief 15-minute show on Friday nights, A Love to Eat, sponsored by Borden. Uh, but he never made it on television. Then Julia Child comes along, right, and just, you know, knocks everybody's socks off. Uh, so could you talk about that? Because I never could figure that out. If you met Jim in person or, or watch him teach a class, he was a ham. He, he could command an audience. He, he was enormously you'd think, telegenic, right? Yeah. Because his force of personality, he was larger than life in every sense. And yet, on the little tiny screen, the television, it did not come across. Why do you think that he was not a successful TV personality? You know, I think it was difficult. You know, he, he started his show on NBC in 1946. It ran for a little more than a year. Um, it was live television. I mean, that's something certainly that Julia didn't have to face later. And it, it drew a lot more on sort of theatrical prowess, um, on being able to improvise, you know, all of the qualities that made him special. His kind of hamminess didn't, didn't really translate on the screen. As a personality, as a friend, he was very generous and down-to-earth. There was nothing really affected about him. He was theatrical, but there's nothing affected about him in some ways. And his food was also like American Cookery, his great book, I think. Um, you know, it was very down-to-earth and wasn't putting on airs. I think in American Cookery, what's so wonderful is you can read between the lines you know, he'll, he'll give three versions of a recipe, like she crab soup or something. Right. And the way he writes it, you can tell which one he prefers yeah. without actually saying it. There's a lot of subterranean writing going on. Uh, and I think his, his writing in that book is, I think it's one of the great books, cookbooks of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sort of brings together, you know, research. And also, he kind of fuses that with, with his own experience. You know, his... He certainly wrote cookbooks, but his books are really, they really describe a certain way of living, a certain way of life, an approach to living. You know, he really, um, he really valued pleasure in food and pleasure around the table. Um, Andrew Zimmern told me this great story. You know, Andrew Zimmern grew up in New York City, and his father, Robert, was good friends with James Beard. And so when Andrew was, was a teenager, his parents had separated, and his father lived with his male partner in Greenwich Village, not far from where James Beard lived. And on Sundays, Andrew's father would drag Andrew to Sunday brunch at Jim Beard's. <laughs> Every Sunday that James was in town, he would have this kind of informal drop-in brunch that would kind of go on all day. And Andrew said it was just all of James's friends, most of them gay, who would be sort of sitting around while James, you know, pulled like a magnificent roast of veal out of the oven in a big copper pan. And it was just the sense that food was this social enabler, that it just was an excuse for people to get together and to enjoy each other's company. Um, you know, because of James's life and sexuality, 
he didn't have blood family who he was connected with, but he had this large adopted family. And that, that way of cooking to bring all of those people together in your life is really what we value today about food. I mean, I think contemporary younger audiences can sort of recognize in James's struggle to live authentically while being part of a wider culture that really didn't want him to do that um, and that created kind of myths and pretended that, you know, he was just this sort of lifelong bachelor. You know, I think we understand James much more through that lens, um, and I think it's a way into kind of appreciating his food and appreciating just this wonderful legacy of pleasure and experience-based cooking that he really gave Americans. Well, thank you for bringing that back and, and for what a wonderful book, The Man Who Ate Too Much. I mean, it really is so well-researched and written. Thank you so much for having me. That was John Birdsall, author of The Man Who Ate Too Much, The Life of James Beard. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Moult, and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So before we get to our call, Sarah, I do have a question. Okay. Cooking always comes down to cleaning up, right? And you're a very organized person in the kitchen. You've worked in professional kitchens. Do you have a system for the cleanup? Do you have a way of making this easier? Well, it's interesting you should bring that up. Uh, Two things. Uh, One is my dad always taught us to get it into the sink and soak it. So I certainly do that. But really, more importantly, I have the husband. We made an agreement early on. It's probably why we've been (laughs) married almost 39 years, that I do the cooking and he does the cleaning. So it's just very simple. You know, he takes care of that half of it. But I will say this. I do try to clean as I go. When I say clean, I just mean if something's dirty, put it in the sink. If something needs to be put back in the fridge, do it. You know, don't wait till the end and you've got a million things on the counter and nowhere to work. So I do clean as I go. That would be the most effective and honest answer here, besides the husband. Unfortunately, I shop, cook, and usually clean. My goodness. You know, I don't mind after cooking for people. I actually like putting the uh, radio on or whatever you want to call it and cleaning. It's not a problem. Jeez, you're a mail order husband. Wow. (laughs) I'd I'd make somebody a good assistant in the kitchen. Wow, very good. Okay, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Joe from Hoboken, New Jersey. How are you? Okay. How can we help you? Uh, First of all, let me say this I'm a frugal person. I save all of my vegetable trimmings, throw them in a plastic bag in the freezer, and when I have enough, I uh, make vegetable stock. I save all my chicken bones, and when I have enough, I make chicken stock. So my question is related not to those, but to that frugality. I grow a tomato plant every year. Uh, This year, I switched to a different variety called Juliet, which is probably about twice the size of a grape tomato and about a quarter or a third the size of a Roma or an Italian. They were delicious and prolific, really pumped out the tomatoes. But before the season was over, I still had a ton of them on the vines, and I didn't get to them before the frost came and killed them all, okay? I'm trying to figure out how to take the green tomatoes and utilize them. Well, we have a long list of things. We'll go back and forth. 
Uh, pickle them. You can use vinegar, sugar, a little salt, and maybe even a little water uh, in a 48-hour pickle. And that'll last, you know, a few weeks in the refrigerator. Or make a jam with them. Just cook it down. Uh, it ends up being a spread for sandwiches, et cetera. Those would be two. Sarah? I would cook them slowly, uh, maybe with some garlic and olive oil in the oven until they sort of shriveled up and got concentrated. And then you could even throw them in the freezer for future use. Or you could turn them into a green tomato salsa verde. Right. In terms of freezing, which I always think about, because you have a lot, right? Yes. It's best to get the water out of a vegetable before you freeze it. So if you did make a green tomato sort of in place of a tomatillo salsa verde, I would saute it or cook it a bit before I froze it. Okay. I'd also make a chutney, a green tomato chutney. <laughs> cook that down. A chutney. You can can that if you like. I used to can a lot. And that'll keep essentially forever if you pressure can it. Okay, okay. So you got a lot of choices there. Oh, we didn't mention fried green tomatoes. Yeah, but that's an obvious. Uh, and it's a little bit harder with a smaller it, tomato. It would be very difficult that's to what, do fried green tomatoes. That's why I mentioned the size because yes. I thought of fried green tomatoes, but yeah. the size is so small I didn't think it would work. Well, you know, you could make sort of a pie, though, or a galette. You know, okay. in that case, I would have them and salt them and drain them a little bit before you ever threw them into the pie crust, yeah, to get rid of the excess liquid. Okay, I think you gave me a lot of ideas. So next year when I buy Juliet, I'll know what to do before the killer frost comes and gets Well, them. can I ask you a question, though, because I've sure. grown tomatoes for years. The smaller tomatoes usually do ripen before frost. Oh, they, they start ripening in August. Oh, these are unusual, yeah. And so when was the frost? In October. And they hadn't ripened by October? Oh, no, I had eaten a lot of them, but right. there were so many more I see. of them. I see, I see, I see. Okay. Just make a quart of chutney. Yeah. Yeah, I, it, the chutney sounds good. The pickling sounds good. The galette sounds good. So I'll let You're you know what set. happened. Okay. Thanks, Joe. All right, thanks, Joe. <laughs> okay. Take care. Right. Thanks Bye. a lot. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mara. Hi, Mara. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Las Cruces, New Mexico. Oh, nice. How can we help you today? I'm calling to ask a question about pumpkins. Mm-hmm. Why is the Halloween-type jack-o'-lantern pumpkin not considered a very valuable food source? Because my impression is that they were bred more for decoration than for flavor, so they may not be as sweet as other squash. But I personally really like the more mild flavor of those larger pumpkins. Why are they not used more for things where a savory squash might be preferable? And then what kind of recipes can I use to incorporate those kind of pumpkins? The reason that I think they've been somewhat maligned, is I wouldn't say it's just sugar content. I'd say it's flavor. They're just not as intensely flavored as some mm -hmm. of the other squashes. And pumpkin is just another sort of version of winter squash. You know, other countries think these other ones that are not as intense are perfectly fine. So, you know, I think you mm -hmm. should go ahead and cook with them. If you go online, you'll see every single country just about has recipes. You don't need that much pumpkin flesh, right? I mean, a winter squash or two, like a butternut squash, for example— is going to be sufficient amount for most recipes. So having such a huge pumpkin, I mean, they're grown, obviously, for size. I used to grow them. So I'm mm -hmm. not sure you would need a huge pumpkin. But, I mean, it would just be too much. But if you wanted to, you could, say, roast it and then just throw the pulp, the flesh, into a food processor sure. and then freeze it. 
but why not go to the store and buy a couple small winter squashes when you need them, and they're fresh, and just cook with those? She prefers the flavor of the big ones. Do you prefer the flavor, or mm-hmm. you're just thinking, why not use them instead of throwing them out? Yes, I've been asking myself that, too, and it is both, and I think... At this point, since my family and friends know that I like them, they tend to pawn them off on me, I guess, So, and I accept them. Well, well, you shouldn't listen to us. I mean, if you like them and they're free and people, you know, it's like you adopt all these pumpkins. I agree with Sarah. Great. You could just cut them into cubes and roast them and then put the roasted cubes into the freezer to add later to stews or soups or curries or whatever. So you're going to continue using your pumpkins, right? Yes. Of course We applaud are. that. Okay. I love the roasting suggestion. I appreciate that very much. Okay. All right. Have a good time with this, and thanks for calling. Take yes, care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Give us a ring anytime with your culinary mysteries at 855-426-9843. One more time. The number is 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jocelyn calling from Bedford, Massachusetts. So how can we help you? I was curious about olive oils. There are numerous varieties. There's cold press. There's robust, white, extra virgin. And I was wondering if you could um, demystify the terminology for me and then maybe recommend some ways on identifying some good brands to work with. Sure. I interviewed someone on the show years ago, and they said that if you think the drug business is nasty, just look into the olive oil business <laughs> because there's a lot of stuff. Hazelnut oils cut in sometimes. Very often the olives don't come from the country where they advertise it's from, which isn't necessarily a problem. If you're cooking with olive oil, it doesn't really matter because you're going to cook off all the volatiles anyway. So there's a number of things you could like grapeseed oil, sunflower oil are fine. It's not going to make a big difference. When it comes to making salad dressing or drizzling over the top of food to serve, then it does make a big difference. And then you buy the more expensive stuff. I like the oils that are yellow, not green. I like the oils that are unfiltered. I like the oils that are soft and buttery, not sharp at the back of your throat. But any olive oil you buy should be cold-pressed and it should be extra virgin. If it's not those two things, it's not worth buying. And those are not much of a guarantee of quality, but it's sort of the minimum you'd want. Yeah, I would just throw in that extra virgin means that it's under a certain percent acidity, which is way under 1%. And cold press means it was the first oil to come off of the olives and the olives weren't damaged. The trouble is you can't get a guarantee really anymore. As Chris said, it's like the drug business. There was this whole scandal in Italy and in Europe for all the reasons he said. And even though it might have said that it was from a certain region in Italy, it wasn't necessarily. The labeling in this country, in Europe, they'll go into the store, they'll test olive oil for acidity, and they'll actually take it off the shelf if it doesn't meet the standards. In this country, there's no facility for having inspectors go in. So they could say anything they want on the label. And that's why the lower quality olive oil often gets shipped here because it's not checked. In this country, a really good olive oil are the ones that come from California and are certified by the California Olive Oil Council. It will say right. there's a, literally a seal on it. One I like is simply called Calif- California Olive Oil. <laughs> it's California Olive Ranch, I think. Olive Ranch, that's it. 
the best olive oil in my mind I get from Lebanon. <laughs> so well, and there's I great mean, I mean, olive oil in Spain yeah, and in, in Spain Greece. And, right. But at any rate, for you right now, I'd go to California. That's my okay. best advice. Yeah, for the good stuff. I'm marginally familiar with that brand. I know they have like versions and things like that. Yeah, Would those do. be for different applications, say like a salad dressing versus something that you would throw in a baked good, or is it really just go with the cold crust and extra virgin? I would use their olive oil for finishing. Look, I would mm-hmm. buy grapeseed oil for cooking. Okay. A high smoke point. It it's totally good. neutral. Grapeseed or safflower, sunflower, but grapeseed's my number one. The trouble is it's slightly pricier than the others, but it's a great oil. Okay. Hopefully that answers your question. It does. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for right. calling. Thanks, yeah. Jocelyn. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear from professional taco scout Javier Cabral. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. 
I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagashoid. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most J Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Javier Cabral. He's the associate producer and also taco scout for the Netflix documentary, Taco Chronicles. Javier, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Uh, you say I've become the token taco writer. Uh, is that a, a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is that a mixed blessing? What is that? Yeah, you know, I, I love food, right? I mean, when your passion is food, you love, you love all food. But I eventually realized that my background, um, you know, being like a son of Mexican immigrants, you know, who didn't really grow up with money, um, actually, on the contrary, I didn't realize that my perspective with, uh, with food writing was a very unique one because I was, I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, food media can be a little bit privileged. It can come from a more affluent background. And, you know, I, I, I didn't realize how there was a, a dearth of uh, Latino food writers in the national foodscape. And so as I started to grow in my career, I started to realize that people were to hit me up. Hey, like, where are the best tacos? Where are the best tacos? And I think it's a pretty common story that sometimes you take the food that you grew up with a little for granted. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up, you know, eating tacos every day, every, like, you know, almost every mealtime I would have tortillas. So I didn't realize it, you know, how special tacos were. And it, you know, it took kind of like this reckoning of like, you know, me coming of age and me seeing uh, how food media can be to be like, well, you know, yes, tacos are my food and I know them inside out. So it's been a journey. <laughs> so you're the... Taco Scout from the Netflix documentary series, The Taco Chronicles, which is beautifully done. So there's a line I'm quoting from the first episode, the El Pastor episode, quote, it doesn't matter if you're drunk on champagne or beer, I'm always there for you. And that's, of course, spoken by a taco. So uh, it's a $1 taco, right? That's sort of the tradition. These days, of course, they're 5 or $10 or even more. Um, is that is the world of tacos changing to become more upscale, or is it just that the ingredients are getting more expensive, or or what's going on? Something really interesting happens when you slip a tortilla under, you know, like let's say you have like two beautiful scallops, right, and you serve that in a restaurant. 
people would be okay paying like $14, $15, you know, for two big jumbo scallops. But when you put it on a tortilla, something switches. And it's, I think people just have this double standard with tacos and they think that tacos should always be cheap. Right. Remember that, that tacos are a working class food. But at the same time, you know, tacos are becoming more pop cultural. You know, you're seeing um, young chefs that are like starting to infuse their, their tortillas with different flavors, with different herbs. And, you know, with that comes in, a, in Spanish, you say alta cocina or like, you know, or, or cocina de autor, which means like tacos by author. Um, let's go through, you know, that first season of the, the Taco Chronicles. You take a different type each episode. So uh, can we just do Tacos 101 here and just breeze through the, the various types and just explain what they are? Yeah, so for season one, that was uh, Barbacoa. We focused the episode on the original Barbacoa in Mexico, which is in the state of Hidalgo. And that is a underground earth roasted lamb. Um, you know, and that's with my gay leaves that you fold over mm-hmm. um, and you roast it. And it's like this beautiful, somewhere between smoked and roasted lamb flavor. Um, we also did the tacos de canasta. The, the hotbed for that is Mexico City because it's, that is the quintessential working class taco. Because, you know, you, you can get like six for 10 pesos, which is like, you know, it's really affordable. And then you, you know, the secret touch, which I don't think uh, many people knew this until we, we explored it in the episode, is the way that these tacos are maintained warm because, you know, they're actually sold and transported around the Mexico City and, and bike and bicycles. And they add one whole liter or two liters of scalding hot vegetable oil all over it. So it's just like these really unctuous, rich, hmm. you know, greasy, but in the good way, tacos. Um, we have uh, al pastor, um, which you know that almost needs right. no explanation. Um, al pastor being the shawarma style pork roasted vertically. The origins of that is actually a, a lamb shawarma taco from the, some of the Lebanese immigrants that, that immigrated to, to Puebla, Mexico. And what about the guisado? That, that was the one that really interested me. Guisados are, are the wild card tacos because a guisado means just a, you know any kind of collection of meats, uh, it could be chicken, pork, beef, um, vegetables, chiles, spices, garlic, onion, just stewed for, for a long time just until it's just all marries together and it's delicious. They're usually the sauciest taco, it's usually the most messy because it's it's meant to be more of a, of a wholesome homestyle cooked meal that's not just like grilled meat on a tortilla. And again, Mexico City is known for this because it's it's the taco that you, that you, that you can eat every day. Um, you know, it's not like a special occasion taco. So let, let's pick a day, uh, any day, when you're doing taco scouting. And let's start, you know, first thing in the morning. And what did you do all day? So for the first season while I was taco scouting, I would actually squeeze in my taco taste trips on extended weekends. So that means that sometimes I would only have 12 hours or 18 hours or 24 hours to, to complete all of my taco scouting um, in one day. It would get really, really intense. I'll give you an example. When I was scouting for Barbacoa, I was staying in Mexico City um, and I would get up at 7 a.m., go try two or three places in the city. I would hop in a car, speed my way to small towns across Hidalgo about maybe two or three hours away. So just after eating super gamey lamb at like 8 a.m. Um, <laughs> in, in Hidalgo, you have more Barbacoa. So at, okay, at this point, you're having probably like, what, seven tacos already? because you also have to try pancita. Pancita is like the, oh man, pancita is like all the offals of lamb. So like kidneys, liver, heart, 
you know, everything uh, that's, uh, you season it with, with a dry chili mixture. Um, and then you, you cook it in like a, in another organ, I forgot. It's a super organy dish. Um, it's really intense and hardcore. Uh, and then after this, we would hop back on the car, drive another three hours to Querétaro for a final destination of more barbacoa tacos and more pantita. Um, so at that point, you know, you're like, you're truly, even like I said, you can love tacos, but you, you, hit, a bri- you hit a brick wall pretty fast, a, a taco wall, should I say, a tortilla wall. So that, that goes to show you just how intense of, a, of an eating mission this is. You know, everyone who says, gee, I wish I could be a restaurant critic or, or, or a taco scout, I think after listening to that, they might, <laughs> they might be disabused of that as a career, right? That's, that sounds uh, pretty challenging. Uh, so you've spent a lot of time hunting down the best places, different styles of tacos. What do tacos mean to you besides good eating? I think, I think tacos are, you know, you celebrate with them. But also sometimes you, you know, you have nothing else to eat. So you eat tacos. It's, it's this unicorn of a food that can be eaten for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's associated with so many memories. Um, for me, tacos just signify good times and bad times. And, and also just how universal a dish can be. So when I was in Mexico City, I was cooking at home with a few people. And, and one of them said, oh, yeah, we, we, we have taco nights. You know, we have like five or six different fillings. And um, that's kind of surprised me. I thought tacos were, you had them at taquerias or at stands or whatever. Are tacos really something people make at home uh, in Mexico or not? That's a great question. And this is something that my, my wife and I always um, discuss uh, because so it's, when you grew up in Mexico, so I grew up here in the States, right? But when you grew up in Mexico, you eat tacos every day, but you don't really call it tacos. You just, you just eat your food with tortillas and you fold a corn tortilla or a flour tortilla with a filling. But, but you don't, you don't call it tacos. You say like you're having, um, you know, puntas de res, which is like a, you know, like a steak fajitas like dish. So yes, you, you, you do have tacos at home, but I don't know many families that do like taco Tuesdays at home <laughs> because taco, taco Tuesdays every day um, yeah. for a lot of families. <laughs> uh, so your first step into food writing was emailing the famous Jonathan Gold uh, in 11th grade. And you asked him for advice about becoming a food writer and you eventually met him. Uh, why did you do that, and what was his advice? Because I, I don't know. I, I, I love food, um, but I realized that my passion wasn't cooking. It was more, you know, thinking these critical thoughts, um, sitting down in front of my computer and reflecting my, my views on them. So you know, him being like the, the go-to guy in my in my city for that. Um, you know, so I grew up in the in the San Gabriel Valley in Los Angeles, which is known um, primarily for its regional Chinese food. And he was writing about places that were like right down the street from my high school, you know, and these things were like five or six dollars. And, you know, and he would write these like 2000 word pieces on them. And I'm like, OK, I can actually go afford to go have this. Um, but by him reinventing food writing or just making it making it more um, universal, you know, making it more accessible to kids like me, you know, who's like a, a Mexican-American kid who grew up in poverty, kind of. I don't know. I just I. I would just, I just, I saw myself in him in a weird way because I was like, man, if this guy can do it, so can I. <laughs> and you know, luckily he emailed back and um, ended up mentoring me and opened a, a lot of doors for me. Um, right. So you know, I hope he's he's resting in peace and um, and you know, he knows that my career definitely cannot have been made possible without him. Javier, thank you so much uh, for being on Mill Street. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, it's a joy to talk to you. Thank you. That was Javier Cabral. He's the associate producer and Taco Scout for the Netflix documentary series Taco Chronicles. 
He is also editor-in-chief of L.A. Taco. You know, in Mexico City, the streets are alive with food, from pork taco stands with every cut imaginable to the famous chilaquile sandwich that includes a fried chicken, cutlet, cheese, and Mexican crema. Street food, in particular the taco, is really the great equalizer, as Cabral points out. But it's more than that. It turns city streets into performance art. Food's fried, steamed, grilled, and griddled right in front of you. So street food turns the sidewalk into a stage. And that's why sidewalk cooking and dining is the best way to revitalize our cities. Walk down the street and enjoy the hustle and bustle of humanity. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Danish Dream Cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I interviewed Nadine Redzepe, and she's married to Renee, who runs Noma, or they run Noma, actually. And we talked about her cooking, which was really interesting. And one of the things that's a classic sheet cake in Denmark is Danish Dream Cake. And it just sounded really intriguing. So you set out to make Danish Dream Cake. We did. So the hallmark of a Danish dream cake is the topping. It's sort of a crackly brown sugar, butter, coconut topping on a typical yellow cake, sometimes a butter cake. In our version, we modified it a little bit and actually took the butter out of the cake. It's really light and fluffy and balances sort of the sweetness of that topping. To do that, you really need to make sure to whip the eggs and the sugar until they're really pale and thick, and this takes probably about five minutes. That's what's going to give us the lightness in this cake. And the texture is not like a typical New York crumb cake. It has a little bit, not chew, but it's got a little springiness to it, right? Exactly. It's sort of like a mix between a butter cake and an angel food cake texture. So you just bake a cake and then throw a topping on it? How does that work? (laughs) Well, you bake the cake. While the cake is baking, we make a topping, and we do that on the stovetop. It's milk, brown sugar, butter. That gets boiled together until it's a little bit thickened, and then we add in unsweetened coconut, and you really want to make sure you're using unsweetened coconut here, otherwise it'll get a little too sweet. When the cake comes on the oven, while it's still warm, we top it with this topping. It's a little tricky because, as I said, this is a really light and delicate cake. So you want to start at the corners and sort of ease your way into the center with the topping. I actually made the recipe more than once, and I thought that would be kind of hard to do, but actually it's not hard to do. It also looks, when it's finished and it's set, it looks great too. That's right. And there's one more really important step here. We want to get that topping even more caramelized. So we actually put it back in the oven under the broiler. So when you put this in the pan to start, you want to make sure you've got a broiler safe 9 by 13 pan. Pyrex baking dish wouldn't work here because it'll crack under the heat. It gets really nice and crackly on the top. When it comes out, we tent it with foil, which is kind of a strange step. I'm sure you've probably never tented a cake with foil before. What it does is create sort of a little bit of a steam silo in there, and that keeps the topping kind of crisp, but not too brittle. Yeah, one of the things that's a hallmark is the top is crisp, but underneath it, it's gooey. Right. So it's gooey, crisp, and then the soft Soft cake. cake. It's a perfect combination. That's why it's a dream cake. Exactly. Lynn, thank you very much. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for Danish Dream Cake at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik walks us through his own whimsical dessert. We'll be right back.
You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Christopher Kimball and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Sarah and Chris. This is Diana from Hollywood, California. Hi, Diana. How can we help you today? So my question is this. I'm trying to make a salsa matcha from dried chilies, seeds, nuts, and garlic. 
And I've heard numerous times from both of you that garlic is not necessarily shelf stable and can be kind of dangerous if it's just like left in olive oil. And so I want to make a salsa matcha that has garlic in it and is shelf stable. I don't really know what to do, and I'm hoping you can give me some direction. Well, geez, it is problematic. Here's a thought, and this is a crazy thought. What about instead of fresh garlic, using garlic powder? Ah. Um, I think that might work. You know, the other thing is you could, of course, make it and keep it in the fridge, but you're still going to have the same problem ultimately if it's in the fridge forever. You could also add some acid and some salt. I'm not sure how much you would need to uh, preserve the situation. Well, you could also do what they do in Thailand with shallots and garlic, I think, but they just fry it and they use that as Uh a garnish. So I, I would just take the cloves and fry them till they're deeply fried and crispy. And I think that would probably kill off anything that needs to be killed. That's perfect. I have two salsas that I'm looking at and they both have garlic and you know what? They're fried. That was my question. Is that what I need to do? Okay, cool. Well, that makes sense because that would remove the water. It would also taste better. (laughs) Yeah, this is true. I'm not really a fan of garlic powder. I started looking up citric acid and all kinds of things, and I thought, this is way complicated for me, so trying the garlic is better. And make a whole bunch at one time and throw them on everything, and you're all good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Delicious. (laughs) Thank you for confirming. I was really worried about botulism, and now I can just fry my garlic. Fry away. Oh, can I tell you something fun? A fun way to slice garlic? Absolutely. Chris is really going to make fun of me, but the best tool for slicing garlic Ready, Chris? No, I'm not. Good. Is a truffle slicer. A truffle slicer. Oh, Lord. Yeah, I have four or five of those in my drawer. Awesome. Right. I'm definitely going to go get a truffle slicer. Thank you for that tip. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. right. Thanks for calling. All right. Thanks for calling, Thank Diana. you. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have any cooking quandaries, please give us a call at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Brooke Anderson. Where are you calling from? Boston, Massachusetts. So how can we help you? Well, I have a question about pork, in particular, leftover pork. I really enjoy eating pork fresh off the grill or straight out of the oven, tenderloin, pork tenderloin, or pork chops. But I also like barbecue pulled pork or carnitas. And while I don't mind leftover pork when it was originally cooked in some sort of sauce, like a barbecue sauce, there is something about reheating lean cuts like pork roast or tenderloin that just always tastes off to me, like a metallic flavor. And so I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for how to reheat pork. Well, you're right, and I agree with you. I mean, stews taste better the second day, but a pork chop doesn't. My solution is take the pork chop or the tenderloin, the loin. I would slice it. You could serve it with beans like lentils and make a salad. You could do the true fajitas in the Veracruz fashion, which is they take very thin slice beef or pork, and they cook it thoroughly, then add it to a tomato pepper sauce. So you could add it to Mm -hmm. a sauce. So I would use the meat as a flavoring to something else. I mean, the reheating is not a problem. Yeah. It, it's just the flavor. So put it with something that's got a lot of flavor. Put it into a taco, whatever you want. But I would not just eat it by itself. That would be my <laughs> circuitous answer. Sarah? 
I was just going to say the things that Chris mentioned sound like a good idea, but I would cut up the pork. You know, you're talking about lean pork and saute it. Yeah. But cut it into smaller pieces and then throw it into the things that Chris said. But plus, say maybe like fried rice would be nice. And mm-hmm. you'll get some caramelization or the Maillard effect, so you'll get some nice crust on the outside. I have a recipe where I take leftover mm-hmm. chops, lamb, pork, steak even. I cut the meat off the bone, cut it into chunks, throw it into a food processor, and pulse it. It ends up in pieces that are like the size of coarse hamburger. And then I combine that meat Mm. with breadcrumbs, usually feta cheese, fresh herbs, maybe an egg for binding, make it into burgers, and dip it again into breadcrumbs if you want to, or panko, and then saute it. And the second Mm. time around, when you add that other stuff to it, it's really darn good. That's actually a stunningly brilliant idea. Thank you. I thought so when I did it the first time, Chris. That was terrific. You could do one other thing that they do in Spain for tapas is they take chunks of pork tenderloin or loin, cover them with spices, let them sit a few minutes, and then quickly, quickly saute them in a skillet. And you could do that here. You could cut it into chunks, cover with spices, let it sit 10 minutes, and then very quickly just reheat it in a skillet. And those spices, Mm -hmm. especially with smoked paprika, will solve the problem of Mm. odd flavors in the meat. Yeah. Oh, these are great solutions. It's something for years I've thought of, like, why do I not like this? (laughs) But this may solve those problems. Every 10th call, we come up with something good, right? Yeah, we do. We're very proud of ourselves. So you're our 10th caller. You just got lucky. (laughs) I'm the winner. You're the winner. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, Mill Street. This is Marianne, and here's five tips. If you're ever cooking salmon or chicken, you can just slab on some mayonnaise, and it makes it hecka juicy. And my kids just devour that. Okay, Mill Street, see you soon. If you'd like to share your own culinary tip on Mill Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor, Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am pretty well, Christopher. How are you? I'm well. Uh, I'm cooking. I assume you're probably cooking too. Not only am I cooking, but I am inventing as I cook. You know, the pressures of our time have led me not just to the usual uh, nightly dinner, which I've been doing for years, but actually to adding in the nightly dessert, um, which I have not been doing as regularly for years. But I have perfected my souffle, if you can imagine it. And more important than that, I have blazed uh, a new area. I have pioneered a new frontier in the art of the pudding. Now, you're a pudding fan, aren't you, Christopher? I love pudding. That's why I love English desserts, because they're pretty much all puddings. They're nothing but pudding, really. <laughs> nothing but puddings, right? Uh, for everything from uh, Christmas pudding to spotted dick and beyond. <laughs> but uh, the kind of pudding I like best, actually, is um, two kinds. One is I love the classic American pudding. You know, great rice puddings in terrific diners always delight me. But I also love the kind of ideal pudding of French gastronomic cuisine, and that is, of course, the creme caramel. Uh, You know, creme caramel, beautiful baked custard with a caramel base that you always struggle to get out of the little mold that you've put it in and never get out quite sufficiently. No, Well, well, the custard comes out, but but the 
caramel topping, half of it stays inside the, the ramekin, right? Yes, exactly. That could be a metaphor for life, Christopher, right? The custard comes out, but half the caramel stays inside the ramekin. And when, when is that not true in our lives? But I set myself to create what I think of as a white knight's pudding. Now, do you remember the white knight's pudding in Alice Through the Looking Glass? No, I, I know it pretty well. I don't remember the pudding, though. What did, could you just go through the recipe uh, for me? Absolutely. In fact, be delighted to do it. You'll remember that the white knight, who was always inventing things, right, explained to Alice once that he had invented a pudding during the meat course to be served during the pudding course. And he told her that it began with blotting paper. And Alice said, that wouldn't be very nice, I'm afraid. And the white knight said, not very nice alone, but you've no idea what a difference it makes mixing it with other things such as gunpowder and sealing wax. And he goes on to explain that this was a pudding that was never actually made, though had it been made, it would have been wonderful, and it was one of his greatest inventions in a lifetime of inventions. Well, my new pudding has been made, and it is my greatest invention. It threw me back, the process of making it, I will be honest with you, to my childhood, because when I was a kid, my sister Allison and I threw ourselves into the art of um, store-bought packaged jello and pudding. And for one whole week, when she was eight and I was seven, we took turns making on one day jello and on the next day pudding. And we decided that we would treat our parents on the Friday of that memorable week to a new invention a melange of jello and pudding mixed together. And I think you can probably imagine just how remarkable that dessert was. <laughs> Colorful, right? Col colorful and interesting of texture and mixture, the milk uh, mingling with the um, uh, with the gelatin and so on. It, it, was, it was memorable. And it scared me off inventing new puddings um, for a lifetime. But I realized in the middle of this new crucible of cookery that... Uh, I had two particular tastes that I really loved in pudding. One was, of course, the classic taste, as I said, of the creme caramel. But I equally loved the uh, classic uh, coconut uh, flan of Cuban cuisine. And there was one more element in this mix that I had always loved and had at one point in my life made often with my daughter Olivia. And that was a wonderful cardamom rice pudding that came actually from the... Uh, the dessert cookbook of that wonderful and now sadly closed restaurant, Chanterelle. And it used a great deal of cracked cardamom, which to me is the always mm. an irresistible spice. I've never had anything with cardamom that was not delicious. So you can imagine the next step in this story, uh, Christopher. I set myself the task of making a cardamom coconut creme caramel with mm. unsweetened coconut milk, substituting for the cream. And because I am a man of um, Baroque tastes and Rococo aspirations, I decided to add in cinnamon along with the cardamom in the caramel that I was making. I mixed it. I put it in the oven. I covered my eyes. I took it out of its little water bath half an hour later. And Christopher, it was spectacular. It was the best dessert, my <laughs> wife tells me, she has ever eaten. And I immediately dubbed it the 5C flan, 5C for cinnamon, cardamom, coconut, creme caramel. And the 5C flan now has become the single thing in all of my creative experience that I am proudest of.
You know, if I may say, this sounds suspiciously like you want my job. <laughs> you want to be Karam. You want to be a famous cook. And, of course, I've always wanted to be a famous writer, uh, which will never happen. We don't know that. Uh, so maybe we just need to switch careers for a week, right? Parenthetically, you know, I wrote a comic book about Karam. That was the first published book I ever really? did. was an imaginary, you know, kind of French Bandesene style thing about Karam, king of cooks, cook of kings. So, yes, indeed, I have always identified <laughs> with Karam. But it's broadly true, I think, and I think that is one of the lessons, that if you leave writers alone long enough and don't let them go to bars and drink, they end up thinking that they're cooks. And certainly it's true in reverse. If you leave cooks alone long enough with a word processor, right. they will think that they are writers. <laughs> and I, that is certainly true. I am far prouder of the 5C Flan uh, than I am of any one of the, what is it now, 12 books, two plays, <laughs> and six <laughs> anthologies that I have sent out into the world. Well, there's an obvious question, which is, have you now, with a 5C flan, gotten this out of your system? And you're going to return to what you obviously are quite good at? Or is this going to egg you on to future culinary creations? Of course it's going to egg me on. Of course. Adam, thank you. And uh, we need to make a date to cook together, but you can cook your 5C flan. I would be delighted to send you the recipe. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. You know, Adam Gopnik wants to be a cook, and I've always wanted to be a writer, which makes me wonder if Socrates really wanted to be a musician, or maybe Rembrandt really yearned to try his hand at throwing pottery. And that's why Rod Stewart loves model trains, and Courtney Love collects dolls, and Alice Cooper plays golf. Which goes to show that being an enthusiastic amateur is sometimes more fulfilling than being an expert. At least you have nowhere to go but up. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.